104. The text this morning is the first 27 verses of chapter 18. So let me read that passage for us and, and then pray that the Lord would bless our study of, of his word and this gospel and then we'll continue on together. So do listen as the Lord speaks to you through his holy word. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. And so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. High priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, and Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I say to them, that they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is this how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why then do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again.
Lord, we know that your word is a lamp to a feet and a light to our path, and we are your servants this morning asking that you would give us understanding that we might know your truth. Let not our souls cling to dust. Do give us life this day according to your word, that word of life that is found in our Savior Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Uh, some time ago, I finally got around to reading a series of books that a few friends had recommended that I read, and so I began to read through these stories, and they began to excite all kinds of attention and engross my mind and heart in many ways, and as the story began to spin forward, I quickly actually came to disappoint my friends because I told them that the ending of those stories had disappointed me because as the narrative was going, as the story was uh, continuing, it seemed that everything was going to get to this climactic crescendo of joy and excitement, of eagerness, and at least from my perspective, everything at the end uh, just fell apart. And of course, I'm sure that many of you have had such an experience before. It may have been a story, it may have been a series, it may have been a film. It, it, it pulses with power as the climax is coming, you're ready for the resolution to finally arrive, and then everything goes in a different direction. All of the unexpected soon arrives. Perhaps from your perspective, everything seems to crumble and fall apart. And that's the apparent situation when you come to John chapter 18. If you've been with us in recent months, you know that it's been for a few months we've been examining John 13 through 17, this very famous section in all of the Scripture and especially in the Gospels of our Lord Jesus Christ because in chapter 13 through 16, uh, we heard what we've often referred to as perhaps the greatest sermon ever preached as Jesus spoke with his disciples there on Passover night around the table talk that he gave them at the Passover meal. And then in chapter 17, what we've seen in the last three studies of John is perhaps the greatest prayer ever prayed, or Jesus utters what we often refer to as the high priestly prayer, this prayer for himself, and then prayer specifically for the 12 disciples, actually 11 disciples at that time, and then of course prayer for all those who would believe in his name. Things were great, things were glorious, majestic, and full of splendor. And then... In our text tonight, what you'll notice this morning in verse 1 is that Jesus, after he had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples. And if you know the text that I just read in the ensuing scenes, even in John's gospel, it seems that everything falls apart. A simple title that I've given to this sermon is The Final Act Begins, and that's what I want to show you. As the final act of Jesus' life and ministry in John's gospel begins, everything seems to crumble, doesn't it? One of his chosen twelve, who knew him so intimately over the previous three years, well, he betrays Jesus for just a few pieces of silver. And as the final act continues, what we find is that religious leaders there in Jerusalem who should have recognized that Jesus, well, he is the Redeemer that they were wanting and waiting for, well, they just reject him and even strike him as the final act begins. Simon Peter, who knew 
Jesus with such unique intimacy as even an inner circle within that inner circle of the disciples. Three times he'll deny that he even knows Jesus. Now what you need to notice from this final act, of course, is it all appears to be that way. That's why I can say such is the apparent situation in John chapter 18 because kids, of course, we know that the story ends in a glorious and joyful direction, don't we? That, of course, as this story comes, this night of Satan's horror that's fallen upon that ancient land of Israel, well, it's here, of course, in just a few days' time, that the great glory of morning brightness is going to break over the dawn of human history because, of course, death and evil are not going to win out as much as they apparently seem to be winning out here as the final act Begins. So if you look at the text that I just read, those first 27 verses, perhaps you noticed uh, Jesus is found in two distinct locations. He's found, first of all, in a garden in verses 1 through 11, and then in verses 12 through 27, he's in this house of Annas, who is the father-in-law of the high priest Caiaphas. And so what I want to do as we walk through this text is just help us see Jesus in these two locations, Jesus in the garden and Jesus in the courtroom. Uh, But underneath that, really what I want to show you is a a series of subtle and not-so-subtle truths about Jesus that are found in these 27 verses, because once again, John is constructing this gospel in a most moving and, and eloquent way to ensure that we know that Jesus is God's only beloved Son, and that we might know him and therefore have eternal life in his name. So look again, Jesus in the garden, verse One, after he had spoken these words, the upper room discourse, the high priestly prayer, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron. Now, students, I don't know if you know anything in the Old Testament about this Kidron Valley or this brook Kidron, but if you were a first century Jew listening to this story being read in John's gospel, you likely would immediately recall a famous, and it's really more infamous, story of the brook Kidron being crossed in the Old Testament. It was in the life of King David. Some of you know the story. His son Absalom, he's stolen the heart of the people there in Israel. He's taken the kingdom from underneath his father's nose. And what does David do but leave, depart, go on a journey across the brook Kidron in utter humiliation. And here comes great David's greater son going across the brook Kindred. And he, of course, is going to go to a place of humiliation. But it's a place that's going to bring our salvation. And they go across the brook and come to this garden, you'll notice in verse 1, where he and his disciples entered. John, of course, doesn't tell us the name of this garden. We know from the other Gospels, it's the Garden of Gethsemane. It's clear enough in context here in John's Gospel, but also the other writings in the New Testament, that this is a place Jesus often would attend with his disciples. He would go to at night, not just for conversation with his disciples, but even communion with his Father. You'll see that. Notice verse 2, that Judas knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Now that place of the glorious agony of Jesus in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Everyone knew where you could find Jesus on that Good Friday night so long ago because that's where Jesus always went to converse, not just with his disciples, but with his Father in heaven. And I wonder if you have such haunts in your life, if we can say it that way, 
for fellowship with God that your children, your grandchildren, your friends, my fellow church members know where you can be found on this day at this time because you're always communing with God on this day at this time. Or perhaps even in the course of a week like our ordinary weeks here in North Texas, a time in the week where you can be found here communing with God, such as your devotion to the Lord. But you'll notice Judas's treachery is unfolded in verse 3. Just a simple sentence. A few phrases, isn't it? Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. This man who for the first or for the previous three years knew such intimacy with Jesus now so readily commits that great act of infamy. He procures a band of soldiers, brings them to where he knows Jesus is going to be. That band of soldiers is probably at least 200 soldiers strong. Some scholars would tell you it could be even 1,000 soldiers strong. Uh, If you know anything about the Garden of Gethsemane, it's not the biggest place in Jerusalem. So there in the quiet hours of the night, Jesus has been praying to his Father in heaven, speaking with his disciples, and then all of a sudden, lamps, lanterns, and lights march their way into the darkness. Gleaming metal of an army comes to arrest this king. And of course, even in John's Gospel, this this theme that we've seen so often, even from the start, of light and darkness, it always speaks to spiritual realities. And the fact, uh, students, that they're marching into this garden with lights in the darkness not only tells us it was a dark night. Well, it tells us too, doesn't it, about the dark night of the soul that belonged to these men. But the first thing I want you to see about Jesus really from this passage is that he shows his sovereignty. Notice verse 4. Then Jesus knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Now, all of the gospel authors, they want you to know that Jesus has all sovereignty. But John, in a unique way, makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is in fundamental control of everything that's going on in the world, and therefore, of course, even in his life, Because children, I hope you know what that word sovereignty means. It's one of the greatest words that you'll find in all the scriptures. And what does it mean? But just, he's in control. Judas, not Jesus, is failing here. Of course, Jesus, not Judas, is the one who is in control of the situation. He takes the initiative. It's as though he steps up, of course. And he stands out. And he simply says, Who are you looking for? You see, he's the master of ceremonies as it belongs to this gospel. Who's the one whom you seek? And you'll see as the text continues, they simply answer Jesus of Nazareth in verse 5. And you'll notice what Jesus says to them, I am he. Now, if you were good with the original language, what you would know is that's actually not what he says, what my ESV translation renders here. I am he is not what he says. What he says simply, whom do you seek? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. What does he say? I am. That's theologically significant. If you know, students, don't you, that this is the covenant name of God that's often shown up in John's gospel. Think about the times in which Jesus has angered the Jewish leaders because he said things like, truly, truly. 
I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Seven glorious I am statements even punctuate this gospel, don't they? He said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. He's not only showing his sovereignty, he's declaring his divinity. And perhaps that's why what we're told in verse 6 happens with this crowd that has come into the garden. They drew back, notice, and fell to the ground. I was reading a commentator earlier this week that was talking about how that falling to the ground was probably nothing more than you got a thousand men marching slowly into the garden and the front of this band marching in, they hear Jesus say, I am, and then they fall backwards and it creates this domino-like effect all the way to the backside of the line and then they're finally and funnily on the ground. It's possible that it might be just that natural, the explanation, but there may be a more supernatural reality present there whenever God comes and says, I am. Throughout the Bible, what do you find people ordinarily doing? Falling to the ground. Jesus again says, if you notice how the text continues, whom do you seek? They say, well, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And look how he continues in verse 8. I've told you that I am he. Again, in the original, it's I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. That that final phrase has tons of gospel in it. Uh, A phrase of liberty, I suppose we could say, let these men go. It's clear enough that, of course, these marauding band of army men that are coming into the garden with the religious force along with them. They're not interested in the disciples. They're interested in Jesus, and so they could just let the disciples go on that fact alone. But, but John tells us that there's a much more deeper significance to Jesus' command of, of let my people go. You see what he says in verse 9? John says this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Only a few hours before of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one So he shows his sovereignty, he declares his divinity. Notice thirdly, he gives security. He guarantees security to his people. Let them go. Uh, There's a wonderful gospel truth in that kind of security that Jesus gives to people like you and me because the Bible tells us, doesn't it, that all of us have been born into sin. We're by nature children of wrath. We're fast bound in sin and nature's Night, as one old hymn would sing, we need to be let go. And Jesus comes, doesn't he? Not just to bring that liberty of let my people go, but bring that security of not a single one of my people whom I free, I will ever let go. It's utterly impossible, Jesus has said all throughout this gospel, to lose any one of his beloved sheep. No one can snatch them out of his hand. And even as those disciples there in the garden are soon going to go free, it's that glorious good news to you too, as surely as they went free from that garden. So sure were you go free, safe and secure in the Savior's hands, free from sin and Satan. But you'll notice as the text continues, we, we find this Simon Peter showing up. Then Simon Peter, verse 10, 
having a sword, drew it. Simon with a sword is always a bad idea, if you know the Bible well enough. You know, I was thinking about this earlier this week as I was with a pastor and we were talking about his denomination's general assembly. It's this time, of course, when ministers, pastors, and elders from throughout that denomination, they gather together annually to debate and discuss matters important to the church. And one of the quirks of that denomination is at the end of the week's gathering, they give a rather humorous award, a trophy of sorts, to the man who spoke behind the mic most often during the week. You know, he, he came forth to make a motion or make an argument or a point during the debate and discussion. And they, they call this award the Jack in the Box Award. And if ever there was a disciple who deserved that award, isn't it true that it's Peter? Of course it's Peter that does something in the garden. Of course it's Peter that has a sword. Of course it's Peter that thinks it's appropriate to slice off a servant's ear. Of course, it's Peter that thinks he's doing something right for Jesus. When all along, he's doing something actually quite wrong. Because you'll see, even as verse 10 continues, he drew the sword, he struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. He thinks he's fighting for Jesus, doesn't he? But in reality, he's fighting against the purposes of Jesus Christ. There's so many professing Christians Isn't it true there are so many churches today that think they are fighting for the purposes of Jesus and he might come alongside and say, no, you're actually doing the precise opposite. Peter thinks he's protecting Jesus from this mob when he's actually prohibiting the mission of Jesus Christ. Notice what the Lord says in verse 11. He says to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You know, the other Gospels, they say, don't they, that this is the cup that so occupied Jesus' prayer of agony there in Gethsemane, where he prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will be done, but, but your will be done. Now, kids, do you know what this cup is? It's a cup of horror. It's a cup of terror. There's all kinds of Old Testament background to it, but let me just read two simple verses to you. In Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 15, the Lord says, take from my hand this cup of the wine of my wrath. Isaiah 51, verse 17, he says, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl the cup of staggering. I must drink this cup. So another truth you must see about Jesus is that he takes God's fury. This cup is the cup of wrath that God is soon to pour out upon Jesus. A cup full of his wrath, righteous and furious, for the trillions and trillions and trillions of sins, committed by billions of Jesus' people. Peter I must drink this cup. The Father has given it to me. I'm in control of the situation to such an extent that, of course, I'm laying my life down of my own voluntary will. But such is the Lord's grace and love that he lays it down knowing what he's going to take, which is 
this cup of God's fury. So that's Jesus in the garden. And you'll notice in verse 12, we move to the second scene, which is Jesus in the courtroom, because the text goes on to tell us, doesn't it, in verse 12 and 13, that they arrest him, they bind him up, and they take him to the house of Annas, who is the father-in-law of the high priest Caiaphas. Now, John's gospel is the only one that talks about Annas at this place in the Passion narrative. Annas actually, about 18 years before, had been deposed by the Romans. Annas was deposed as the high priest there in Jerusalem. The Romans instituted this law where a high priest could only be in charge for a certain fixed length of time, where, of course, uh, the Old Testament said that the high priest was an office of life. You're supposed to be in that role for the entirety of, of your life on earth. And so Annas was very much, you need to think about him as this man behind the scenes. He was kind of pulling the strings and the shadows of influence and control. No less than five of his sons became high priest. One of his grandsons became high priest. And now his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is high priest. He's actually such a hated figure in the land that his name became, his name became synonymous with the dung of donkeys. And this is where Jesus goes. But before it gets to what Jesus is doing and saying, really, in that courtroom, notice who's following Jesus along the way. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside the door. As students, of course, we don't have the exact name of that other disciple. It seems quite clear, and I think we have reason to be confident, it's John in this moment. Something of an intimate acquaintance John was with the high priest. He speaks with the servant girl there at the door into Annas' courtyard. He gets Peter VIP access into the courtyard as the court proceedings are soon going to go. And you'll notice what the servant asks Peter in verse 17. You also are not one of this man's disciples. Are you? And Peter simply says, doesn't he? I'm not. He took the easy way out is perhaps one way to think about it. It's just a servant girl asking him a question. He's not summoned before a courtroom. He's not summoned before a leading light in the land. He's not summoned before someone with religious or governing authority. It's just a simple servant girl. You aren't one of his disciples, are you? Well, he knows it's not going to get very far if he says, I'm not. So what does he say? I'm not. And that simple denial only leads to more and more sin. And isn't that the way it always goes? One simple denial. No one's going to know about it. No one even very important might have asked me about it. Leads to more and more sin. And in John's telling of the narrative, he cuts the scene right there, doesn't he? Peter's there, standing in the courtyard, warming himself by a charcoal fire. We get to verse 19. He goes right to Jesus in Annas' courtroom. And you'll see in verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Notice Jesus' response. I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me say what I said to them. They know what I said. So here's another thing you need to see about Jesus as he speaks with clarity. 
doesn't he? What he's really telling Annas there is that, Annas, everything I've said is open and known to the public. It's not as though I've been speaking about my mission in the world publicly, and then quietly behind the scenes I have this revolutionary intent with just a few things that I'm saying to my beloved disciples. No, everything I've said is open, it's not secret, it's clear to everyone who heard it. Just go ask them what I've said. Go ask them what they've heard. And that kind of clarity rings forth even in places like this throughout the world, on days like this, doesn't it? Uh, Through his word and spirit, Jesus speaks clearly to people like you. Uh, You can trust that the Savior has no mixed motives. There's no hidden agenda that he has. He speaks with clarity about who he is. Clarity about what he came to do. It's a response that's all too dignified. All too unsettling to people there in the room for notice What happens in verse 22, when he had said these things, one of his officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? You know, don't be surprised when the unbelieving world doesn't know what to do with Jesus, and their not knowing what to do with Jesus and their hard-heartedness of sin means they react violently against Jesus. They have no charge, real charge, against him. They have no witnesses, real witnesses against him. They have no evidence, real evidence against him. And still, all they want to do is slap him. Don't be surprised when an unbelieving world in the midst of their unbelief still slaps the bride of Christ today without charge, without evidence, without reason. It cuts, doesn't it? Right back to Peter. And you'll notice what happens. He's standing, warming himself. Verse 25, and the disciples said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? Those standing around the fire. And he says, I am not. The other thing you need to see about Jesus, the sixth thing in this passage, is that he's a prophet of reliability. What he had told Peter, remember, only a few hours before, Peter, at the end of chapter 13, he's hearing about those people that are going to, the disciples that will step aside from Jesus and even run away from Jesus. You remember what Peter says with all the the blustering bravado that just belonged to Simon Peter? They may do that, but I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus prophesies what? Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. He's done it once, he's done it twice. Jesus is the prophet of reliability. Notice it comes a third time. Verse 26, one of the servants of the high priest, the relative of the man whose Peter ear had cut off, they asked him, well, didn't I see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. The Savior who has come and constantly said, I am, is met met now by a most fervent disciple who's failed three times. I am not. I am not. I am not. So the final act begins. And it seems rather dark and dreary. One of the most famous preachers over on the other side of the Atlantic in England in the early 20th century was a man named Campbell Morgan. In 1888, he was 
working to be ordained in the Wesleyan ministry, and he had taken all of his ordination exams. He had passed them uh, quite easily and efficiently. And then the last hurdle that he had to jump over to become ordained is that he had to preach a trial sermon. So he walked into this room on the day of that sermon. It was a room, I suppose, about twice the size of this. It would seat about a 1,000 people. There in front of him that day were just three people who would examine his sermon along with 75 or so uh, people that were interested in the preaching. He, he preached his sermon and he waited for news about how it went. He soon found himself on a list of names of those who were rejected as candidates for gospel ministry. Upon hearing that news, he wrote in his journal that night, very dark. Everything seems. You, you could be tempted, couldn't you? Here in John chapter 18, after verse 27, right in the margin of your Bible, very dark. Everything seems. And it would be a good thing to write. Just underline the word seems. Very dark. Everything seems. But the Savior of sovereignty and divinity, he's in control of all things. There's hints, there's glories of his security of his love and taking the Father's fury. There's, there's greatness about his clarity and reliability. But I want to show you a seventh and final thing that's actually there in the text too that helps us underscore very dark everything seems. Because there's actually light in the darkness. And the final thing is that you need to be amazed at his mercy. Look at verse 14. It was Caiaphas, Annas' son-in-law, who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Sometimes unbelievers say things much better and truer than they realize they're saying. One man should die for the people. Do you see his mercy? It's clear he's going to be the substitute. One man must, should, and will die for his people. Now here's the good news and be amazed at his mercy. What kind of people is Jesus going to die for? You have a perfect picture, don't you, in this passage. One of his chosen sheep whom he will die for is in this passage doing what? Failing. Denying. Proving himself what? Altogether unworthy to be one for whom Jesus would die? But his mercy is, that one belongs to me. I will die for him. Because what has Peter done in the midst of this moment to merit this mercy of Jesus Christ? Absolutely nothing. Just as those disciples there in the garden, the eleven that were let loose... What have they done to earn that liberty and security? Nothing. All they had to do was look to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. And the liberty, the security, that mercy comes to them. And I hope you know that same gospel offer belongs to you today. People who have failed and are failing. Who have denied him. And are denying him that in his mercy he takes the place of sinners. That, that one man should die for the people. 
knowing all that would happen, Jesus stood forward, stood out, stepped up and said, Whom do you seek? I hope you know by his word and spirit, he's asking you the same question today. Whom do you seek? I trust you know that even today, he is the same answer to that question. I am the one that you're looking for. I'm the one that you need. I am he. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would fill us with an overwhelming humility and a tenderness towards your truth this morning, that you would raise our gaze to Jesus Christ, our beloved Savior, full of more mercy towards people like us, that he would die in our place, such as his grace and love. Help us to be united to him by faith, we pray this day, and ask it in his most powerful and precious name. Amen. Well,